Hello, everyone. I'm excited because today I am joined by one of my favorite people, the person who wrote Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. Um, the book is finally out. I've, I've known about this idea for a long time, and I'm so excited for the world to be able to kind of experience it. And I thought it would be fun to talk about the idea of quarter life and uh, quarter life crisis through through story, right? There's a Robert McKee quote that says, stories are the creative conversion of life itself into a more powerful, clearer, more meaningful experience. And because I love um, what this book presents so much, I wanted to, you know, do it in a way that we can kind of get beyond just the typical interview. But before, of course, we do, um, please uh, give give people some context about who you are and uh, just the book in general, right? Because of course they need that in order for the conversation to continue. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Um, so I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak. I'm a psychotherapist. I have a private practice in Portland, Oregon. And my focus since the start of my work has really been on what I call quarter life. Borrowing from the quarter life crisis, I try to talk about quarter life beyond the crisis, which is to say really identifying a stage of life that has gone by a lot of names, but most of them are either pejorative or they're generational, which is to say that they're really speaking about a specific group of people instead of a stage of life. Um, so I talk about quarter life as the stage between adolescence and midlife. It's the focus of my work. I wrote this book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. Um, and that just came out in the end of July. Uh, so I've been talking about it lately and, and loving these conversations. Um, I also run a little institute online called the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies. A lot of my work is really based in Jungian psychology, which has some Joseph Campbell influences and certainly storytelling is a massive component of this. So um, I look forward to where you're taking us in this conversation today. Absolutely. Well, um, it was interesting. You and I were going back and forth about what stories we were going to talk about. Right. And, you know, part of it was we were trying to create a Venn diagram of what we've read and seen. And then we sort of landed on two interesting uh, stories and I don't think it's coincidental. So mm -hmm. we did wild and into the wild and obviously both share the word wild. Um, both, you know, are books and, and movies and though, uh, though nonfiction technically, you know, it's just like any sort of memoir. Um, although into the wild isn't a direct memoir. Um, it's written by somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, the, they still have to fictionalize elements to tell the narrative of what the person's life story, or at least a section of it is. And so I guess in that sense, one of the interesting parts for me that I want to use as a jumping off point, what, what is this notion? Like, it feels like the more we get technologically advanced into things, there's this automatic trigger that we just have to go back to basics into the wild, right? Like just, just experience nature. And I, I want, I want to ask you, maybe it's a leading question, but is that coincidental? Do you think? Well, I mean, both of these books are about quarter lifers, first of all. I mean, you know, so wild by Cheryl Strayed, right. Who I was actually listening to on a podcast this morning, coincidentally, and who I'm lucky to have as a neighbor, you know, a few miles from here um, in Portland. Um, but she, she was healing from the death of her mother, uh, as I think she was 22 years old and she developed a heroin addiction and 
um, was really trying to save herself. And so for her in quarter life, going back to the wild, I think, I mean, this is interpretive, but a core part of this stage of life when we're raised in, uh, you know, modern culture that is very divorced from nature is really to find our instincts again. It's to say, how can I listen to myself? How can I hear myself? Who am I? That requires going back to nature on some level, whether it's literally nature in the forests, you know, in the oceans, out in the world, or some kind of deeper relationship with our bodies and instincts. Um, And I think that, gosh, I'm going to mispronounce, is it Christopher McCandless? Can you remind me of his name? Yeah, Christopher McCandless, or um, as his, he adopted the name um, uh, um, Super Tramp. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, his story that, that, um, what is it? John Krakauer, right. Uh, tells in into the wild. Um, similarly, I mean, he, they, it's, it, it's a great pairing that you selected because they really are doing similar things of like, how, how do I figure out who I am as separate from my parents, as separate from my childhood in the world now? And they both enter the wilderness to find themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm, I always like to go so deep so fast, but to contextualize things. So you also, as part of like the, the quarter life theory, I'm going to call it, um, you have stability types and you have meaning types, right? So stability being this idea that as the name implies, you're looking for some sort of guarantees in life. So the ground isn't so shaking. Um, meaning is, you know, uh, the idea that we're looking for purpose in something. And then, um, can you also speak to the the four pillars of, you know, of, of quarter life in terms of how it is? Because I think it'll be very important as we dive deeper into sure. the story. Yeah. So, I mean, since we've already started with these books, I really see both Cheryl Strayed's quarter life and Christopher McCandless's quarter life. They're both they're both meaning types. Right. They're really trying to find out what does it all mean and in in both cases, they were struggling with the social expectations of them, I would argue. Um, so these are sort of two meaning type people, um, as I would phrase it in my in my book. Um, and they're they're searching for wholeness. They're searching for some quality of stability that they're comfortable with and um, some sense of meaning in the world. The The four pillars, which I do think are really relevant to these stories, are what I speak about as I call them the four pillars of growth in quarter life. And they're really four important areas of focus for us as we find out who we are and who we are in relation to the external world in these years. The first one is to separate. And and separating, separation is an age-old, you know, cultural, ritualistic, even religious... uh, quality of coming of age, which is how do you separate from childhood and parental relationships and the identities that you have when you're younger and really become who you are. It can be physical separation for sure. It's also a lot of psychological separation and and transformation. So to separate is the first pillar. To listen is the second pillar. This is listening to yourself, learning to listen to your body, learning to differentiate what are instincts, what are imposed belief systems, to learn when you're hungry, to learn when you're thirsty. I mean, some really basic things that, again, um, one would maybe laugh that we have to learn these things unless you're in this stage of life, especially in in modern Western society, arguably, um, where we've been so divorced from our bodies, it's hard to really know. So learning to listen is really learning to listen to yourself in, in myriad ways. 
the the third pillar is to build and that's really more of the discipline and willpower and hard work it's less the receptivity of witnessing yourself and more really how do you uh, put into practice what you know needs to change what you know needs to be created and so speaking of story i often think of like the karate kid you know the the wipe on wipe off image of the rep- sometimes really repetitive exhausting um discipline required very mundane boring discipline sometimes required to get us to growth and even to sort of ecstatic um success or ecstasy or spiritual growth or something right so so that's to build it's the discipline and the hard work um and the fourth is to integrate the fourth pillar is integrating what we've learned and often just witnessing and allowing the integration to unfold. So often the pillar of integration is, is celebrating and noticing, oh my gosh, something happened. All this work that I've been putting in, all of this witnessing and inner, inner witnessing and labor, outer witnessing and labor, it's coming together and things are starting to happen. That's the fourth pillar. Gotcha. Um, I'm interested. I, I want to just push back uh, politely, of course, and for fun. But like, so with Wild, you mentioned that's a meaning type. And I think definitely there's an element to that. But I think I, I want to get your idea on what if it was also a stability type? Because mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the differentiating things is the, it, that story with Cheryl, she kind of does this because she lost her mother, right? And sure. so essentially the crux of my argument is that the mother represented at least some sort of stability in her life. And once sure. that was gone, uh, you know, now, you know, she was doing heroin, she was being promiscuous totally. and all that stuff and, and didn't have that. So she had to essentially, she was forced to find meaning, right? Because the stability was lost. Yeah. Is that a fair interpretation or. Sure. I-, I mean, absolutely fell. And, and, you know, you don't have to agree with me. So no, yeah. I, well, it's not that I, I, I wouldn't say I even agree or disagree. I think that it's all, letting ourselves explore these concepts right and um all of it is on a continuum all of it is just theory to help find our way you know it would sort of be up to cheryl to read the book and self-identify right that's really truly what this is about it's self-identification but i think that's right i mean i talk about in the book that stability types in crisis sure look like meaning types right if somebody was sort of climbing these ladders of stability and then the whole staircase fell apart they're in crisis they're floundering and panicked and, and flailing. Um, You know, it's, it's the same thing. It's well, okay, how do I find my way back to a sense of stability and safety and security, but that's not devoid of meaning and purpose. And I think that's really been Cheryl Strayed's journey, you know, from that point forward of, of finding how do I, um, you know, combine these things to make a life that I want to live without my mother here. Right. And so like, I want to kind of extract that because I think, you know, each has that very interesting starting point. And I want to kind of try to figure out for the audience, you know, how they can relate to it. Right. So for her, there's a outside catalyst. Her mother dies for um, Chris. He graduates college and he'd essentially kind of been fed up his whole life. But he's like, I did what you asked me to do. I got the diploma. Now I'm going to do life on my own. Um. And so I, I feel like, you know, the much more, for better term, uh, for lack of a better term, it, the easier route is when like the world forces is on you, as much as it painful it may be, it's that thing that just shoves you to like go and create a change mm-hmm. versus it coming from internal. 
Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, how does one sort of identify uh, that like, yeah, life isn't what I would like it to be. And then take that first step to go on this journey. That is quite a journey, right? Sure. <laughs> by both people. Sure. I mean, you know, in his case, he really, it was a very courageous act of, of separation. I mean, his, his story is, it's an excellent quarter life story because he was very clear this life that my parents raised me in this life that of, of like, you know, total stability, kind of white bread, middle, upper class, whatever. Um, I don't want to do this anymore. It's killing me. It's, it's suffocating me. I mean, again, this is my interpretation of this story, right? My, my, um, my way of, of understanding it, but he really knew from his gut, this isn't working for me and I don't want to do it this way. Um, and so he listened to that. I think very, the, the very vast majority of folks don't listen, don't know how to listen. Um, and he, you know, I mean, he ended up dying, right? So he took some major risks too. I mean, this was both really courageous and arguably, um, dangerous as well. Right. So he was, but he was sort of throwing himself into life saying, I'm not doing it this way. And he gave away all of his money. Right. I mean, he just like, he cut ties radically and drastically. Right. And went in search of himself. So, um, but I think it's a beautiful exploration or a beautiful image, as you say, of, of having that impulse come internally to grow and transform versus it being imposed externally. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's what ultimately I guess I'm trying to get to is so that way people, um, you know, they can do it in a more healthier way, you know, where because yeah. I think I even look back at my 20s, right? That idea of like, I don't agree with society, yeah. you know, to whatever spectrum, right? But it's like, I just feel like a lot of people, we just kind of, and I, I think that's part of the issue is society tells us like, shut up, you don't know any better. There is nothing better. So just, you know, deal with it. And that's essentially the only <laughs> roadmap that existed before this, you know, and yeah. that only creates further frustration. Can you Absolutely. I don't know, explore that just a little bit? Because I mean, I, I, obviously that's the, the jumping off point for which you wrote the book was that yeah. there's a better way. Yeah. I mean, it's tragic, isn't it? Like to be, to be raised in a society that so many of us in our guts and our bodies don't feel safe in don't believe is the best adults can do i mean you know how many kids are looking up at whatever the adult culture is you know whatever subcultures whatever and just going like this is what i'm coming of age in you know because there's so much faith as children that whatever is happening in the world is like the best possible world it's like everyone's doing their best like the best art is the art that's for sale cuz cuz there's this sort of sense maybe it's a meritocracy really and you start getting disabused of that pretty quickly, right? Like, oh, it's not the best of the best. It's, it's you know, it's sometimes the worst of the worst who have just elbowed their way into the world. So there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartbreak that happens coming of age, like realizing this is the world that I'm supposed to now live in for the rest of my life. And so really, I mean, I think that's part of why depression and anxiety and, and heartbreak are so rampant in this time where you now aren't a kid and fully dependent anymore, but you really don't necessarily want to take on the responsibilities of the world because the world is not 
operating at maximal, you know, joy and efficiency or anything. In fact, it can feel like the opposite. Um, so I really try to draw attention then to the sort of co-creating opportunity of how do we create our lives and create the world and not just take for granted or, or, you know, swallow wholesale this notion that like, this is just it, figure it out, kid. You know, that's an old line that, that I think has literally killed a lot of people and, you know, in terms of suicide and depression and anguish. Um, We need a more compassionate society for people coming of age and a more compassionate society in general to say, hey, this isn't working so well. (laughs) You know, how do we make this better on every level? And how do we encourage people coming of age to love their lives and co-create change? Yeah, I think an interesting part for me that I recently kind of stumbled onto was this idea that like not even, you know, people talk about loneliness and like cities being a hub for people. And it's like cities aren't built around people. They're built around commerce quite literally. Literally. And what? And cars. And cars. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so I find it no coincidence that, you know, that there's not even these two people didn't even find beauty in that. And they had to like divorce themselves and the world in that more naturalistic, beautiful way and find like the true actual beauty that existed um, Absolutely. there um, for sure. And um, there was something as far as Chris is concerned, I know this is kind of jumping a little bit to the end and, you know, I, I tend to be all over, so I apologize. But um, what's interesting to me about his story, you mentioned, obviously he, he tragically died and it was major risk. But at least as things are presented, he did want to, it feels like, reintegrate, right? And it feels like he never got that opportunity. Um, and in, and I think it speaks to this idea that, unfortunately, I feel like even as a society, we just crucify, let's say, people in their 20s for making wrong decisions. Sure. And quite literally, we say, like, you're making a terrible decision. Sure. As opposed to it just being part of the path and it being okay. Totally. You know? Um yeah, I mean, what what I say about his story generally is that he, he, I mean, in Jungian language or in hero's journey language, and and you alluded to this for sure. It's um, he he was attempting to initiate himself into adulthood. You know, I mean, he was in a very instinctive, powerful way um, working on kind of classic initiation rites of young men into the world in which you go on a a walkabout, basically you enter nature alone and you know, a few things and in a sense you survive or not, you know, but if you survive in return, and this is all hero's journey stuff, storytelling, right? If you survive in return, you're not the person you were when you left. And so there's a, a deep understanding of essentially the need to kill the old self and also a need to kill the parents in a image as an image, right? What happens very frequently in society. And I, and I think most often a young among young cis men is the literalization of the killing. And so there is a deep instinct for a lot of arguably most men coming of age that we don't have language around, which is to kill the old self or to kill the parent, the image of the parents. And too often what happens is instead of that happening psychologically or culturally, you know, it happening internally in this transform transformative psychological journey, young men become filled with rage and they 
literally kill their parents as a lot of school shooters do in it you know sort of they kill they literally kill their mother before shooting up schools but that i see that as this process actually of the attempt to separate that's not getting any support and in fact they're getting closed in more and more Christopher McCandless, I think, is an interesting story of someone who clearly was trying to self-initiate into the world, into adulthood, and trying to kill the old and trying to separate from his parents. Instead of killing the old self, he ended up literalizing that death, right? He died. I mean, he literally, his body died. Um, Arguably, if he had survived and come back, you know, it was was a series of accidents and mishaps that led to his death, in addition to a lot of risk-taking. But what happened was a series of mishaps. If he'd come back, he would have absolutely been a different human than when he'd left, right? I mean, so much growth and transformation would have happened for him. Um, and it, so there's the tragedy there. And I think as all, often also happened on those early initiation journeys that, pe- you know, younger men wouldn't return from those walkabouts or those um, those journeys of initiation. So it's a powerful story. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the powerful aspects of it to me was um i think uh his name is ron the uh the older um man that he meets along like it's basically the last person or so it's presented that he essentially forms a bond with mm-hmm. and the, and it's a weird juxtaposition because this is a man that you know is older and uh essentially does not venture out into the world right um and makes all these different excuses and you know christopher kind of gets him to go out um and they form that bond to the point where Ron asks him, like, don't go, like, I will adopt you. Mm. Um, that touches heartbreak, you. like it, the, the effect that they had on each other. And I do think, I don't know, I'd like to believe that Chris would have came back and, uh, you know, been well, the same. Can I ask, what, how does that move you specifically? Because I think, you know, when we talk about quarter life in general, um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it, the, the separation of generations, right? You know, the older generation sucks, the younger generation, they don't know what the hell, hell they're doing. When it's like, you know, I think for me, part of the pandemic was learning that I, I, I've gained a lot more empathy for older generations of like, yeah, things aren't great, but in my heart of hearts, they were doing the, like the world was pretty fucked up back then. So they were doing the best they could equally right and they didn't have the right tools they didn't have the right language so we're better off in that sense um so i can have empathy but i want it vice versa too right um and so it felt like without it being overt like that was the subtext of what the those two represented yeah you know yeah wow the cross-generational the sort of older man really seeing this younger man and saying like you don't have to do this alone don't don't put yourself in danger like be be my person be my partner be my adopted son whatever yeah yeah and then you know because i think uh cheryl she didn't have as much of that at least as it was presented and part of me i guess wonders um the idea like because i think they they're both white you know cis people uh straight um in that way and i think like like chris's journey felt as hard as it was it felt the easiest cheryl's there was a constant danger of like just you know predatorially at least mm-hmm. and then i imagine like i mean you know you go down the list of everyone else and i'm like how like if they had a hard enough journey how much harder is it 
you know, as you continue, you know, yeah. in the spectrum of, you know, society in that way, right? Like it's uh, right. And, the, you know, that's exactly right. There's a reason, of course, that so many LGBTQ youth are, are homeless. I mean, the, you know, massive numbers of LGBTQ youth that are homeless or suicidal or have successfully committed suicide. Um, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, and that's just speaking about that population, but you're absolutely right. You know, and how many young people are initiating themselves on the streets of cities. Um, they're kind of attempting to enter the wild or the darkness to self-initiate and they're doing it through gun culture or drug culture or street culture. Um, this is something other writers and, and psychologists and, and therapists have written more about than I have, but it's, it's so intense and tragic. You know, Michael Mead is a wonderful resource for this, for especially working with young men or returning vets or, um, you know, there's a lot of wonderful folks dealing with, um, you know, urban youth and trying to understand, like, we are not raising people well. And for the most part, as you put it, as you articulate, adults are are making it harder. They're not making it easier. You know, they're they're making it harder through ridicule or judgment or lack of empathy whatever. And um, so the number of roadblocks in the way for people who don't have white privilege or, or economic privilege is extraordinary. Cis privilege. How do you, um, what's that fine line between, cause I, I, you know, I'm of the notion, like when you enter 18, right. I know legally people are adults, but I also like to look at them. Like you now have responsibility but at the same time, still have like that side of empathy and, you know, that people can make mistakes. Like, how do you view that fine line? Because um, just to kind of add further context, you know, I think quite literally by by Cheryl and Chris going out into the wilderness, they wanted that sense of responsibility That's right. for, literally for their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so. I, I I don't know. I think for me, that is an element of it of, you know, that that sort of not self-reliance, but I guess maybe for them. Um, but I, you know, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think it's black and white where it's like you now fully like that rugged individualism, you know, separate of a communal aspect being there to support you. And so I'm just more curious. Well, I mean, I talk about this elsewhere. It's not so much in the book, but um the fact the 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 very strange way that we identify adulthood, at least in America, but again, I think it's most of the Western world on some level or another. We we declare in America that you're an adult when you're 18. Um, for the most part, right? There's a lot of asterisks, a lot of um, kind of footnotes to that. But the majority of, of what that means is that you now can be thrown in jail for the rest of your life if you fuck up. You know, it's not a big grand welcome. It's not like, hey, you're an adult. Uh, Here are some things you need to know about life. Here's some money so that you can survive. And here's some financial support. And, um, you know, and here's a college degree. Like if you are interested, we, you know, there's free college for you. There's nothing that is like a welcome present to adulthood. Instead, it's just don't fuck up. And if you fuck up, you no longer have the protection of childhood. You're now fully responsible and we will throw you in jail for the rest of your life for this, this, or this. You might even be put on death row, you know, like though that's the welcome. Um, so it's, 
one, it's terrifying. And, and I knew this even as a young woman, I mean, I was young woman, you know, in less crime riddled communities. I knew though, in my body, the sort of danger of the police or the danger of the justice system now that I was a certain age. And, and I find that incredibly strange that we saddle people with that degree of responsibility without the support. We know that people in this time of life, brain development, modern neuroscience is very clear that our brains don't fully develop until we're about 25 years old, you know? So there's seven years or so in which we have massive responsibility placed upon people without even the cogn- full cognitive emotional development that older adults have, right? So it's tricky. How do we how do we really encourage people to be responsible for their own lives and to take on that responsibility um, and let them screw up and let them fail and let them stumble and fall and let them journey and, and look like idiots? All that should be part of normal development. But instead, with that level of punitive expectation and, and um, you know, and danger, it just becomes very scary. You know, it's a, it's really a terrible system <laughs> that we have in place. Yeah. And, and I think, too, um, certainly it felt a little bit maybe more part of Cheryl's narrative. But the idea that, like I did everything that I was supposed to do correctly. Right. That I'm not I'm not happy. I'm not you know, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And right. certainly I can look at like people that went to college that now have like good jobs and yet literally can't afford a house. Totally. And and have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt that probably they'll never actually end up paying off or whatever. Right. Um, so can you, yeah, can you speak to that sort of, because it's like, you know, this side of it is, yeah, if you fuck up, right? Which is, you know, I guess in some sense you could be like, okay, well, I understand at least like there's maybe a fairness to it this is the opposite you did what you were supposed to so where's the reward totally i mean it it goes back to another thing you said earlier of like to me you know when you said cities are really built around commerce you know i think of adulthood also as being built around commerce and the economy that we don't we're not raising adults to be extraordinary citizens or extraordinary family members or friends or to be a part of a community or, or, you know, we are raising people to be a part of the economy. And in that, um, nobody is really watching out for the person, right? So it's like, uh, colleges compete for the attention of people in their late teens and their parents. Uh, they just keep raising the cost of that, but the, but the expectation is still that young people go to college. So however much they raise tuition, that's just the, what you got to pay. Right. And on and on same, of course, with buying a home, the way the economy functions again, it's not looking out for anyone. It's just competitive. And so the folks who do everything right, as far as we at least used to define it and adulthood, I talk about this a lot in the book, but it's like, What we understand as being a successful adult is a very white, heteronormative, middle-class notion. It's totally constructed, and it's constructed around acquisition of things, um, acquisition of stability, but also a mortgage and a college degree now and, you know, whatever. So um, it's no surprise that people climb this kind of ladder to nowhere and then end up going, wait, what? Now I'm trapped. This isn't what I wanted, Right. Um, it's a false bill of goods. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we are not set up to support people to enter life 
independently and feel satisfied at the end. Yeah. And so for that reason, I want to explore integration more because, you know, we obviously don't, we, we could speculate about Chris's reintegration, but, um, but Cheryl did. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, she's certainly written great books, um, has a wonderful podcast and it feels like she's found her footing. And this doesn't mean to say that she doesn't struggle and things of that nature, but it, so in that sense, you know, I think a lot of times we talk about like the, the hero's journey. And then there's of course the return, which yeah. ends up being like such a side note because it's, no longer the interesting part, but even Stephen Pressfield explores it in the artist's way is like, now that you've gone on this thing, now, like if you, as an artist, if you want to create, it's very much the routine boring of like, wake up, type at your computer if you're a novelist and like rinse, wash, repeat. And so it doesn't sound sexy whatsoever. And that's that why it is fascinating to me is like, how do you like maintain that spirit of I found myself and maybe a sense of optimism in this sort of return to the society that we're talking about. Well, so, you know, a key part of the hero's journey component, as far as Joseph Campbell kind of broke it down is this idea of bringing back the boon, you know, the idea of I went out, I journeyed, uh, I, I was challenged. I almost died. Usually I survived I learned this extraordinary thing. I mean, you can think of this as like Buddha's journey, Siddhartha's journey. He, you know, he, he found the key to enlightenment, right? Now he can't come back to society and just hand out enlightenment, you know, but he can, he can do his best to translate what he knows and offer that back to others. And so, and it's not that, I mean, for Buddha, maybe this is a bad example in this context, but for, for mere mortals, the rest of us, you know, um, it's not that then the rest of life is like done, you know, but the notion is you have radically transformed your consciousness from one thing to another thing through this extraordinary journey. And now you need to come back. And and one thing Campbell talks about is the failure to return this other possible stage in which people just don't, you know, um, they they don't want to come back. They don't want to come back to society and bring what they know. They're they're too horrified by it. Or and this is on some level the Christopher McCandless story is he quote unquote failed to return. He literally died instead of instead of this self initiation of psychological death, spiritual or or um, symbolic death. You know, um, but other folks, let's say um, you know you you uh, well it could be a million things. Maybe you go. I don't want to speculate because I don't want to judge anybody's journey and I don't want to inadvertently do that. So, but there's a notion of the failure to return, right? So part of the goal here, and I think Cheryl's a great example of this is she came back and in the coming back, she returned, but her work then on some level just began to translate everything that she had learned and experienced um, into storytelling and into teaching and into advice giving with her dear sugar um, podcast and, um, uh, writing and column, you know, is, is how does she translate this self-development and creative development to something that can be then provided to society? So I think Campbell's, this is part of why I talk about quarter life as being very timeless is the way that Joseph Campbell understood this. And as reading myths historically is most young people have disliked the world they were becoming of age in from the get-go you know it's it's always been kind of painful and confusing it's like this 
you know? So there's always a feeling of I've got to go back. And how do you then make magic in your own individual life in a world that doesn't feel great? And that then becomes this kind of microcosm of the larger story. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I know you didn't want to trip up over Buddha, but yeah, I mean, it, to me, it reminds me of like Gandhi, you know, be the change that you wish to totally. in the world. I think that's, I'm paraphrasing if I didn't get it fully complete. Well, but he's a beautiful, I mean, he was a huge, huge, huge influence on, I wrote my, my, thesis in college on Gandhi and and so he's really his essence is in this book too I mean it really is that it's like be the change transform yourself you know it's alchemy we can't change the world just by pulling levers you have to transform internally yeah and you know um can we speak a little bit more of that because I think you know um obviously we can only talk about Cheryl in this sort of context because as we may mention Chris never made it out but um you know I I, I like it might be a stretch of a comparison to some people, but, you know, Cheryl, like Gandhi, is not of quote-unquote power, right? You know, I mean, when you look at Gandhi's life, he never held a position beyond just like, he was a leader by every definition, but he did not hold a position of power as one would typically look at, you know, Lincoln or anyone else, like any sort of quote-unquote leader, right? And I think that's a fascinating aspect of it because I think that's part of it, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if you experienced this a lot, but I think people have this sense of waiting, like, okay, if I get to this position, whether it's at their job, or an opportunity, whatever it is, they're waiting until that to do something. It's like, well, that ironically might come if you do X, Y, and Z, but I know it's never, or it might not, but it's never going to come if you're sitting around, you know? Well, I hear you talking about the difference of sort of spiritual and soulful power mm-hmm. versus um, kind of acquired, acquired power. You know, I think, uh, I mean, it is sort of, I can only imagine Cheryl's comfort with being compared to Gandhi, um, <laughs> you know, but, but I can, I can really feel what you're saying that in both cases, they live in the world or lived in the world as people who were transformed from the inside out and led led people with their words and their vision and their self-understanding from their beings and not because they had been elected to be president or something like that. Right. So um, that's about self-transformation. And, and that's really, again, core to the storytelling notion of like, of if you transform yourself, people notice that we don't know how we see each other in that way, but we witness it. And if you haven't, you don't, you know, one of the worst things, of course, is a, is a psychological child in a position of power. I mean, that's terrifying. You know, somebody who really has not done the inner work, but happens to have been elected to something. We, we have a great deal of experience in that now in America. Um, can you talk about the notion? Cause I think patience comes into this and I've, I've heard patience sort of defined as calmness, remaining calm while suffering. And I, I think that's an incredible way to sort of look at, especially on this return, like you have to maintain that sort of spiritual integrity while, you know, the rest of the world is is kind of going and, and you know, tied into that, um, part of what's helped me with the notion of calmness is this idea that, uh, you know, like we, we kind of go to dominoes as this like visual um you know, metaphor of, of affecting change, you know, just all it takes is one domino and then they all fall down. 
but interestingly enough, we look at it from the whole as opposed to like a singular domino, which literally its only thing to do is to affect the domino in front of it. Mm. Right. And so in that sense, that's kind of calmed me down of not having to have this oh, beautiful sweeping, uh, you know, uh, yep. necess- necessary requirement to like affect change. It's like, I just need to, to affect one person. That's beautiful. Um, and so that's that helped me. You. That's helped me. Yeah. So, but, but I would love to hear if there's any other viewpoints on like having that patience after this return for people. Well, man, I mean, you know, the, the first part of your question, I think, is really beautiful and, and I think also very calming. It reminds me of one of my very favorite quotes. Um, you know, so I'm I'm a huge nerd for Carl Jung's psychology and he his sort of magnum opus, which was not published until 50 years after he passed away, is called The Red Book. And it's a very kind of poetic, mythic inner journey. But in it, he he's he talks about um the the kind of infinite universe the literally infinite universe it's unknowably infinite and that in the infinite universe you know huge acts are as small as tiny tiny acts that they're so um the math is so insignificant the difference you know and he says prune you know prune your small small garden well tend your small garden well and it's very similar to Gandhi's message. It's very similar to this domino metaphor is, is, you know, it's you do you, do you, do you deeply and powerfully and beautifully make yourself the art of what we're trying to do in the world. And you never know what, what effect that has. You never know how many people you end up influencing. Um, It's very different of course, than social media culture or capitalism of trying to acquire followers and trying to acquire buyers and all that kind of stuff. It's a much slower, more patient, more quiet method. Um, So, you know, as, as regards how that happens with the return, I mean, I think it's, it's part of the whole journey of just really trying to keep one's focus in a beautiful way on one's own life versus in a um, self-obsessed way or self-hating way on one's own life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, as we, as we sort of wrap out um, an interesting component and, you know, part of it, part of why I love stories is because there is that interpretation and self-projection. But I look at, um, you know, I think when, when we talk about myths of society, there's this whole notion of like how long someone lives. Right. And for me, I'm less interested in the length of life, more interested in the width of life. Sure. And I think um, in this way, like when we talk about this search, like I think that to me is what we're trying to find is how to have the most meaning at any given point, rather than just say like, Oh, I live to be a hundred. It's like, but what did you do? Sure. Um, well, and who you, who were you? Yes. Can you, yeah. Um, can you speak like, yeah, I, I don't know, speak to that question. I think it's a three words, but very. Well, I mean, I say this with, when I hear somebody in my practice or, you know, again, in quarter life, that's just my focus, but say that they are scared of dying. What, what I know from what that person has expressed that they have a fear of death is that there's something in this life they haven't done yet. And I don't mean that again as like, I mean, it it is so beautifully specific to each person. We all know somehow, whoever the creator is, whatever the contract with the universe is, I have no idea. I don't don't honestly care that much. 
what the answer is. But I know in my body that there are certain charters of things that I've needed to do in this world and would not feel comfortable dying until those things were done. And um, so when I hear people fearing death or fearing the end of life, it's like, well, what's undone, you know, for you specifically, you know, for that individual's soul specifically, um, people who really feel like they're in alignment with life aren't that worried about dying or the length of their life. People who are obsessed, I think, with lengthening life or like, I've never understood this whole desire for immortality thing. It doesn't resonate <laughs> for me at all. Um, uh, but I think as you're saying, I mean, the sort of width of life, like how deeply have you lived? Right. And then, and then the length isn't really that important anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, I think that's a nice way to sort of tie it. Cause like, you know, in some sense, I was worried we, we forgot about a little bit about Chris, but, um, you know, as tragic as his life may seem, and again, it part of it, it is speculation, but, um, but all intents and, per, it, you know, one is led to believe that he died a peaceful death. Mm. And, um, yeah, that there is something interesting to it, um, that he lived ultimately, like, of course, I'm sure he wanted to continue, but it's like, you know what, if that was his path, that was his path. And, um, even for me, like I kind of do look at it, um, you know, I can like, there's many things artistically I want to create, but because I have this presence of moment, at least I try to most times that if, if for some reason I never got to it, it's okay. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and, and then really witnessing what's the thread in that, what's the most important component of it? You know, what's the, what's the unifying element that's saying, this is what needs to be born into the world. This is what needs to come into form, you know, or this is what needs to transform in myself. I think that's where the listening comes in of just really noticing as clearly as we can. Oh, it's, you know, it's not really about that or that it's about this. Like we get more and more refined when we hear ourselves and witness ourselves. Um, and there's something about the reality of mortality that makes that possible, that really deep self-witnessing and says, hey, you better focus and pay attention, right? And it's interesting in both of their stories, both Cheryl and, and Christopher, death played a major role in one way or another. It sharpened focus in some way. And certainly too, I mean, just, I mean, he outlived that death, right? I mean, the fact that we're talking about, you Absolutely. know, like, he, yeah. I think one really died, like there's... I think Steve Letter talks about it, you know, there's the physical death, but then there's, um, I don't know what the term is, but uh, the, yeah, I mean, right now, he's not dead until we all forget about him. Mm. The fact that he's this, my, my dog fully agrees. Um, but yeah. Um, you got to take her out. It's time. She knows. It is. It is. Um, no, I think it's the sworn enemy, the mailman. Um, is there anything? Is it, Chloe? Um, is there anything, uh, that we might've missed as far as, uh, you know, that you want to say to audiences while, while we're here? Nope. I really, I think your dog's naming it. It's the wild element. The animal, the animal presence is making itself felt, you know, I think, I think we're good. I think we've, ex we've, we've talked about a lot of great stuff. It's been fun. Well, I appreciate you going on this journey. I try very much not to ask surface level questions and I appreciate your willingness to just dive in the deep end. Yeah, it's fun. It was fun. Thanks, Phil. And uh, yes, if, uh, if you have not picked up your copy, Quarter Life is out. You know, uh, you can get it in Amazon and bookstores and all that. Um, 
is their preferred method. I mean, I know I listed the most corporate versions, but <laughs> no, it's all you know. It, it, whatever, whatever will you know? Whatever. It, it really doesn't make a difference to me. I've been pushing the book on Bookshop. Dot org a lot um, or local bookstores, but you know the truth is Amazon moves a lot of books, so wherever it's great, it's great for authors. Well, thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Pleasure. Mm-hmm.